Normally, this is where I would ask you to turn in your Bibles, but that wouldn't do you much good now, would it? Uh, And I wouldn't want you to try to strain your eyes. So give ear to the scripture that I'm going to read to you tonight, and I will be reading from the Christmas passage in Luke chapter 2. All through this season, going through the Advent wreath and all the various things, the hope, peace, joy, and love, all those things that are represented in the Lord Jesus Christ, all those things that we get from knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. So tonight, I want us to look at what transpired that night that all the prophecy came to fruition. When the one who was promised to come and crush the head of the serpent arrived with all the majesty and sophistication of a cave in Bethlehem, the night that the mighty God came as a vulnerable baby. So if you would listen as I read to your hearing the first 20 verses of Luke chapter 2 and speak to you upon from the throne to the manger, hear now the word of the living God. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring to you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which is come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we have heard very familiar words, words that we hear at this time every year, multiple times every year. We hear them recited in Christmas plays. We hear them recited On the radio, we read them on Christmas cards. God, help us tonight to hear these words, the the message, the passage, the old story of the perfect God coming to be, to dwell 
like one of his creation. God, help us to understand and wrap our hearts and our minds around the fact just how awesome that is, that the God who spoke everything into creation condescended and became like one of his creation. Father, guard our hearts and minds as we go through this passage. Draw us all to a closer walk with you. May us know not just the true meaning of Christmas, but the true meaning of all things is indeed your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. On the night that the Lord Jesus was born, something spectacular took place. The plains of Bethlehem became the theater for one of the most spectacular sound and light shows in human history. All heaven broke loose. I've divided this, this passage into three, three headings, three points. God's sovereign plan, God's incarnate gift, and true Christmas spirit. In the first six verses, we see God's sovereign plan. Let me read you again, verses 1 through 3. It says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed or registered. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, everyone to his own city. Before he was Caesar Augustus, he was known as Caius Octavius. He was the adopted son and primary heir of Julius Caesar, before and after Julius's death, the Roman government was constantly torn apart by power struggles. Octavius ascended to undisputed supremacy in 31 B.C. In 29 B.C., the Roman Senate declared Octavius to be the first Roman emperor. Two years later, they honored him with the title Augustus, meaning exalted one. Much like the Egyptians with their pharaohs, Rome believed that their kings, or Caesars as they were known, were given the right to rule divinely. Prior to Augustus' rule for 500 years, ancient Rome was governed by the Roman Republic. Our country kind of mirrors that model that ancient Rome established. Their government allowed for people to elect officials, kind of like we do. It had a constitution, detailed laws, and elected officials known as senators. When Augustus reigned, he completely abolished the government and became dictator. He reigned until his death at age 76 in A.D. 14, and under his rule, the Roman Empire dominated that part of the world, the Mediterranean region, ushering in a period of great prosperity and relative peace. And the text says that he ordered all the world, which was all of the Roman Empire. The, to them, that's all the, 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 the world that mattered to them, to be taxed or to be registered. He wanted to know how many subjects he had under him. This was not merely a one-time census. The decree had actually established a cycle of enrollments that were to happen every 14 years. Palestine, which is where Israel is, had been previously excluded from the census because Jews were exempt from serving in the Roman army. And that was the purpose of the Roman census, to register young men for military service. We do the same thing here in this country. Every young man, and now, sadly, with the passage of legislation... Uh, every young female that turns 18 must register with selective service so if the time ever came that they could be drafted for military service. This is what Rome had used their census for in the past. They wanted to know how many young men they would have available for their army. This new 
universal census that is told about in the, in the text was to number each nation by its family and tribe. It was required that every male should return to the place from where his tribe was from. That's the historical reason. That's the political reason as to why Caesar instituted this taxing or this registering for all people. But what's the real reason behind it? The real reason behind it is God. In the Old Testament, God, through the prophet Micah, prophesied these words. It says, uh, Micah 5, verse 2 says, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall, come, shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. God purposed and planned for where Messiah would be born. God established in eternity past just exactly where his Messiah would be born, where he would send his Messiah to be, and that was Bethlehem. God established that Messiah would come from the line of David. Joseph and Mary were both descendants of David and therefore had to leave the city that they were in, which was Nazareth, and travel about 70 miles through the mountainous terrain to get to Bethlehem. So folks, the, the registering as decreed by Augustus was done under the influence of Almighty God in order to carry out His divine purpose that had been planned ever since God had said, even before God said, let there be light. When? When did this take, when, when did this take place? God sovereignly purposed where Messiah would be born, but He also purposed when He would be born. Here again, these words... Uh, Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Serenius was governor of Syria. There's a time stamp for you. You can look through the historical record and see when Serenius was the governor of Syria, which was from about 6 to 9 B.C. The Word of God tells us in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, it says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. The fullness of the time that is spoken of there is not just talking about Mary's term of pregnancy. It was all of human history up until that point in time. God had been working and weaving together the whole time, lining everything up. If you recall uh, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, the genealogies, he, God worked through all of those messy and jacked up relatives and all of their sins and all of their uh, uh, successes. And he worked through the ones who were faithful and obedient. And he worked through the ones who were unfaithful and disobedient because God's plans and his purposes will not be thwarted. God gave the prophecy that Messiah would be born of a virgin and he brought it to pass in verse 7. Where it says, and she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger. God decreed that Messiah would be from the lineage of David in Isaiah 9, and he fulfilled it in verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and of the lineage of David. God decreed and brought it to pass that Messiah would be preceded by a forerunner, John the Baptist. God providentially worked it out. The shepherds would be right where he wanted them to be, watching over their flocks so that they could be the first earthly messengers of Messiah's birth. And we see that all of history, all of human history is really his story. 
It's really God's story. And he is working out his plan and his purpose for his glory. For with that tremendous passage that we all know by heart in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. That tells us that God is not just working out the plans of the characters of the Bible. And these people are more than just characters. They are real people that really existed. Outside of the Lord Jesus, they were all sinners. They all had issues. They all made mistakes. They had triumphs. They had moments of joy. They had moments of sorrow. Yet God worked every bit of it together for his good and for his glory. And if you think about it, he's doing the exact same thing with our story, with your story. From this text, we see God's sovereign plan, and that means that God is in complete Total control. It's indeed as the song that we learned as children. He's got the whole world in his hands. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God is a source of such peace. It means that God has every detail of mine and your life lined up and itemized from beginning to end. Even the national confusion that we're seeing right now, God is in control. Even if you're experiencing difficulties and uncertainties in your own personal life, God is in control. God has purposed and planned everything since before the foundation of the world. And knowing that is a source of great hope, great peace, and great joy. Realizing it that all of it is a plan, God's plan of love. God is always in control. Even when it seems like there is nothing but chaos and disaster. I've said this to you several times. It, all, everything around us may appear to be going wrong. But because God is in control of everything at all times, it's going wrong just right. Imagine how Joseph and Mary must have felt. Imagine how how they must have felt, the questions and the things that they had in their own mind. Even though the Lord had spoken to them through angels and in in visions uh, uh, to to Joseph, but an angel directly to Mary. Here is Joseph, a young man who we're not told much about. We know he did not come from money. He was a carpenter. He was of the lineage of David. He was like any other Jewish young man of that day. He was trying to make a living and get a good start for him and his bride to be. There was nothing about Joseph that stood out. Yet God chose him to be the earthly father of the incarnate son of God. Same thing with Mary. There was nothing out of the ordinary with her. She was, of the, she was also of the line of David. She would have been your average young Jewish girl for the time, yet she was chosen by God to carry, deliver, and raise the Messiah. Imagine, what were they thinking for that 70-mile journey? What's going through their mind as they're making that 70-mile journey over that mountainous terrain? We don't have any way of knowing because it's not recorded in the scriptures, but I, I agree with many paintings and, and, and books and other artwork that Mary was probably riding a donkey while Joseph walked. Now, they may have both have been on foot, but we don't, we don't know. But I, I've always thought since having children of my own, I know Jesse couldn't have made a 70-mile walk in the ninth month. Would not have been possible. So they are traveling, both of them. They've got to be exhausted. They've got to be scared. Here they are in the ninth month of Mary's pregnancy, and now the government is making them take an unplanned journey 
Joseph was probably a little ticked off at that. I don't envision a lot of discussion while they're traveling. It's probably a lot of quiet thinking, a lot of quiet prayer. But God was in control. He was in control the whole journey. And because he was in control then, and he has promised that he will never leave us nor forsake us if we know him through a personal relationship in Jesus Christ, we can trust that God is in control right now. And when you and I do that, we have great hope, great peace, and great joy knowing that God is in control. Point number two, we see God's incarnate gift. Listen again to the, the words in uh, chapter, seven, uh, chapter two, verse seven. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In verse 11, we hear the announcement of the, the angel, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior which is Christ the Lord. Unto you is born this day. The resurrection changed the course of human history, and it was the greatest victory ever won. The cross was the greatest display of passion and love. The manger was the greatest miracle of all time. This has been the overall message that the Lord lays upon my heart this season and every Christmas season. God becoming human. The incarnation of God becoming human flesh is the reason why we celebrate this thing called Christmas. You, you gather together uh, with your family and friends not because of traditions, we gather together and we feast and give gifts because Jesus is our Emmanuel. He is God with us. It is something that is very difficult to process with our, with our finite human minds. God condescending and becoming one of his creation. While Jesus was on this earth as, as flesh, he never ceased to be God. He never lost any of his divine attributes. He never... Uh, ceased to be God. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, one of the uh, most prominent Christ Christmas verses is, For unto you a child, unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor. El Gibor in the Greek, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And then that beautiful prologue in uh, John chapter 1 beginning at verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And if you drop down to verse 14, it says, In the Word, the Logos in the Greek, the Word was made flesh, and it dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Apostle Paul would teach, would have to teach against a false teaching in his day called Gnosticism. It was a belief that Jesus was just a spirit, that he didn't have a physical body. And he wrote to the Colossian church in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, speaking of Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. Jesus Christ is the perfect image, the exact likeness of God, and is the very form of God and has been for all eternity. He is, he was and is God truly in every way. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9, we read, For in him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All of God dwelt inside Jesus' human body. There was absolutely nothing that Jesus could not do. 
only things that he would not do. The Son of God possesses the highest dignity, worth, and glory because he shares fully in the one essence, because he shares in the one essence of God Almighty, never stopping to be God the entire time upon this earth. There were times when he chose not to make use of his godly attributes, but it wasn't because he could not. It was because he chose not. He was indeed truly God. Yet at the same time, Jesus was also truly man. Hear again what it says in verse 7. It says, And she brought forth, meaning she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger. The second, part, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, God the Son, became a man just like any one of us here. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23 said, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, being interpreted God with us. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of the incarnation. God was manifest in the flesh. The Lord Jesus was as human as any one of us here tonight. He had all of the physical attributes that you and I have that make us human. He had a body. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5 says, uh, Wherefore, when he cometh into this world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared for me. Luke chapter 2 and verse 52 tells us that he learned and that he grew. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus was subject to his earthly parents. He learned and he grew strong. How does God learn? How, do, how does God learn in, in, in that sense? 1 Timothy 3.16 said us, great is the mystery of godliness. The incarnation is truly a mystery. The hypostatic union, God becoming flesh, is indeed a mystery. But Jesus was truly man just as much as he was truly God. He grew tired. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He felt pain. And he wept. And he wept. Listen to this again. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Jesus condescended. He lowered himself to be made vulnerable. Jesus was vulnerable. He had to be cared for. He had to be kept warm in those swaddling clothes. Swaddling clothes kept, kept babies from scratching themselves. They were the first century version of a receiving blanket. The Son of God had to be placed in a receiving blanket. The God who created everything and has need of nothing made himself to have to be cared for as a baby. And the one who possesses all the riches and glory, who can, who can supply all of your need, became poor, impoverished to be born in a cave. And church history has always supported the belief that it was a cave. There were not uh, any of these beautiful, big, elaborate barns that we think of today. There was no big, beautiful building on top of a concrete slab. It was more than likely a, a cave because there was no room for them in the local hotel known as the inn. The one who will make the new, the one who will make the new Jerusalem with mansions for his children and streets of pure, transparent gold for them to walk on was laid in an animal's feeding trough. But this leads us to wondering, why? Why go through all of that? Why leave all of the glory and the splendor of heaven and the communion and the love 
with the Father and the Spirit. Why leave all of that? It's a popular Christmas song called I'm Dreaming by Bing Crosby. I'm dreaming of a, a white Christmas, right? Probably one of the most well-known Christmas songs. It's, it's, it's you know, when you, when you think about Christmas music, that's probably one of the first ones that come to mind. But what about the dark side of Christmas? What about the dark side of Christmas? For why Jesus had to come, he left all of heaven because of sin, because of Adam ruining it for us from the get-go, and then you and I putting our own personal stamp of approval on it. So we're hemmed up and hemmed in. There's no escape. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says, As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. So Jesus left all of heaven because we had sinned. And he left his motive for leaving ultimately was because of his love. His motive of leaving heaven was for his love for his creation. That deep agape love. In that verse that I've said over and over these last several weeks, Romans 5, verse 8, for, but God commended, he directed, he gave his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus left all of heaven to restore us to divine favor, to make us sons of God instead of sons of men, to make us heirs of a heavenly kingdom instead of heirs of hell. So the ultimate purpose for his coming to earth was to die. Ultimately, Jesus was born to die. Jesus came to suffer and to die. That's why he became flesh. That's why he took on our nature. That's why he became man. Bethlehem only happened so that Calvary could happen. He was only a baby so he could grow to be a man and die. He, only, he was only born so that he could die. Those soft Baby hands fashioned by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb were made in order that one day nails might be driven through them. Those chubby feet, pink and unable to walk, were one day to walk up a hill and be nailed to a cross. And that sweet head with sparkling eyes and an eager mouth was formed so that one day men might crush a, a crown of thorns into it. That's why, Jesus was, that's why Jesus was born. That's why Jesus became flesh. Jesus was born to die. Folks, what a Savior. What a mighty, mighty Savior. Mighty God adorned of angels, yet all the tender man. One with divine attitudes, yet feeling our needs and our emotion and our passions. He is our substitute. He is our salvation captain. He is our sanctifier, our Satan conqueror, and our sympathetic high priest. Yes, Jesus was born to die and to die for sinners. Christ died for sinners. And Acts chapter 17, verse 30 tells us, and, and the times of this got ignorance God winked at, but now, now command, commandeth all men everywhere to repent. To, to command that all men everywhere to repent, repent of your sin and trust in the one who was born that day in Bethlehem's cave and laid in a manger. Third and finally, we see true Christmas spirit. 
true Christmas spirit. Let me read to you verses 13 and 14. It says, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And then in verse 20, it says, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. At the angel's announcement of the birth of Messiah, a multitude of angels joined him and they sang the doxology. Heaven was rejoicing because of the great act of love, mercy, and kindness that God had shown mankind that day by sending Jesus. And we see that rejoicing in the text. In verse 15 through 16, they go. The shepherds go. They, they, they get the announcement and they're, they're moved. They're, they're, they're driven to go and see just what this heavenly announcement was all about. And when they had seen what they, and in verse 17, listen to what it says. It says, and when they had seen it, which means when they had seen uh, what, it, what the angel had told them, when they had seen it in the fullness, when they had seen it in the flesh, when they had seen the babe Christ, when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning the child. They made it known abroad. That means they didn't keep it to themselves. They told it to everyone they came in contact with. They showed everyone the reason why they were excited. Everyone could tell of their excitement, and it was because of Emmanuel. God is with us. And then down in verse 20 again, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. The shepherds rejoiced because they had seen a marvelous sight. The shepherds rejoiced because of what God had done. They rejoiced... Because on that day, they had seen God with us. They had seen Jesus, our Emmanuel. The shepherds may not have said these words, but they definitely experienced joy to the world. The Lord is come. And as the shepherds rejoiced on that first Christmas night, you and I are still rejoicing today. And we are not to rejoice during this time of year because people are going to give us stuff. We're not to rejoice because we have, we're going to get, going to go have feasts. No. Those are ways in which we rejoice. Those are, way, are ways in which we display our joy. Those are ways that we display our celebration. They are the, re- Jesus is the reason why we have joy. And we rejoice. We rejoice during this time of year and all year long because of the Son of God became flesh that you and I may walk in His footsteps and in the power of his healing, walking in the joy of his forgiveness and bursting to full with that good news. What we celebrate this season is that our God, the one that spoke us into being, became a man, a man so real that we could have, we could have invited him to our Christmas dinner. We could have wished him a happy birthday. We could have offered him hot cocoa and given him badly chosen gifts. We could have knit him a sweater and washed the dishes that he ate on. We could have offered him our best fudge and showed him our Christmas lights. And in this season, our greatest hope is that we do these things for him. And as we see him in those who bear his image, may every part of your life declare to those you love and to those around you that God is with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word as I have unworthily tried to unfold it. Father, it is the old story.
that we've heard, many of us have heard since we were children, of Christ coming to earth to become flesh, to dwell among us. Father, that is what we celebrate. We celebrate Christ's birth, God becoming flesh so that God could live sinlessly. God would die vicariously and be our perfect substitute, our perfect sacrifice. Walk out of the tomb three days later, forever defeating death, hell, and the grave, accomplishing our perfect redemption so that one day, either by way of the grave or by way of your return, we spend eternity with you. That is what we celebrate this day and every day. And we give you thanks and praise for it, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.